Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Tonight, we are excited to have uh, the Penn Prize winning writer, Smith Henderson. Um, he's celebrating his novel, The Fourth of July Creek, uh, or Fourth of July Creek, not, no, the. Um, Kevin Powers has called it astonishing, and we trust Kevin Powers. Uh, he's going to do a little reading at the beginning, and then he's going to be in conversation. Um, joining him will be Brian McCreevy, uh, whose book, Hemlock Grove, was uh, turned into the television series recently. So first, please welcome Smith Henderson. Hey, hi, thanks. Uh, um, yeah, fuck Amazon, right? Uh, Powell's, you know, I used to drive from Montana, where I'm from, and go to uh, Seattle um, on acid, <laughs> like, like at night. <laughs> and then we would get to Seattle, and we'd stay up all night, and then we'd sometimes go like, oh hell, let's drive, let's drive down to Portland, and I'd always wind up in Powell's. It's, um, I got off to a good start. <laughs> And um, it didn't explode, so. Um, uh, but I used to go there and, and um, wander around. Um, and it's, you know, like Powell's is, I don't know how many of you know about that Powell's, but it's a big, big-ass bookstore. And, um, but it's an independent bookstore. And I don't know. Uh, I felt at home there. Just always felt at home there. And um, this kind of tour for me is just going to little homes everywhere and now that I live in Portland I feel real proud of Powell's but then I get to another town and I go oh there's you fuckers have one too awesome so <laughs> so thank you very much for coming um my book is called Fourth of July Creek and so I don't drop my water again I'll put it over here um and um it's about a uh, a child protective services worker named Pete Snow who um is living in Montana in the 1980s, and he's got a lot of problems. Um, first, probably among them, is the fact that he is um, living in Montana in the 1980s. Um, and he's a social worker with long hair. And um, cowboys and independent types who are voting for Reagan that year aren't too keen on this guy who is, according to the, his president, the problem um, with the country. Um, and so I, I like to kind of open with a section in the middle of the book that's when he's um, gone home and he's found out um, he's home because his father has died. 
um, some old cowboy came up to him and slapped him on the shoulder and said, I'm so sorry. And his father was from Shoto, Montana, a small town, and he's a kind of a cowboy baron, son of a bitch, who has been mean his whole life. But after Pete's mother died, married a born-again Christian, got religion, and tried to get right with God. And um, Pete's some sort of secular, humanist, long-haired, hippie dude working for social services in Montana at the same time. And so he had a strange relationship with his father, and I, I think that's the first problem he has, and I kind of like to start there. Um, his mother's, uh, his stepmother's name is Bunny. <laughs> I knew a Christian named Bunny. <laughs> it's just real judgmental. <laughs> Um, an odor of leather, sawdust, and lilac, and some ineffable scent of the house or his parents themselves that was a smell to him now of longing and dread at once. What had come to see like, seem like the smell of past time. Pete took in the kitchen the old man's last day, half cup of coffee where he'd left it. Bunny didn't touch the stuff. Usually there was a hint of manure wafting off the old man's boots from the mudroom, but not today. His jacket and boots were at the morgue. I forgot to tell you guys something. My grandfather um, told me this story one time when I was a kid about he had this neighbor who was um, this stubborn son of a bitch too who um, this old guy who didn't want to hay his cattle um, with help. He was too stubborn to do it, but he's about 70. So he um, put a rock on the gas pedal on his truck and then got in the back of the pickup and let it idle through the pasture and was throwing the hay out of the back for the cows. And the truck like hit a bump and the rock came off, or the rock pressed on harder and it accelerated and he fell out and broke his hip, which my grandfather thought was fucking hilarious. And um, so uh, Pete, Pete has um, Pete has found out this is kind of why what's happened to his father. So Pete sat at the table in front of an unpromising game of solitaire. His father had gotten up when he saw he wouldn't win, went out to the barn, pitched hay out the loft into the back of the pickup. That alone made him ache. Or was he coughing, hacking up bloody bullets of snot? Did he try calling Turner? No, he was too proud to call anyone. But he didn't want to be heaving himself in and out of the cab, coughing, sore. Figured he could clever himself out of this little predicament, just idle his way across the pasture. Then stars. He found himself lying in the frozen mud, the old clover, the pain in his hip astonishing. And in all that pasture, the truck orbits back to him. Did he find that ironic? What it would feel like, a pickup on your chest. Pete went down the little hall to the den, descended the short landing into his father's lair, fish and fowl on the cedar walls and pictures of the same. A framed collection of caddisflies and stoneflies surrounded by a dozen plaques and plates from fraternal orders and associations. Next to his father's easy chair was a 
half-full ashtray and a box of 22 rifle shells, the rifle near the window for shooting gophers, paperbacks on the floor, Louis L'Amour and James Mishner, a Bible, and a few religious tracts of bunnies. His mother's things were in a basement closet. He sat for a long time on the concrete floor turning through albums. There was a picture of five children arranged like nesting dolls on a dray horse. There was a picture of a young woman side saddle on a bicycle. Her father or uncle or perhaps her new husband holding it upright by the seat. There was a morbid picture of a child on a beer, his or her hands composed around a shiny black Bible. So many albums peopled with old Scots and Germans who stiffly stood in their canvas and gingham in wind-blasted straw hair and dun hats like people hewn from wood. People could, uh, Pete could scarcely believe these stern apparitions were his people, that any part of them had been handed down to him, that they'd ever existed at all, and yet they had, and many had come to novel ends, death by dynamite, by rope, by fevers, by horse, by broken hearts, by suicide, and now by pickup. Mm-hmm. Um, so he continues looking through some pictures, um, and um, he's uh, the bit you need to know in this part is that he got married when he was really young, and um, because his girlfriend got pregnant in high school. And um, her name's Beth. There are pictures of the wedding of Beth Young, a lean, mean girl who can make your head boil with jealousy when she wants, girdling pregnancy, smoking, and making a bad impression. You say you love her. Can your father understand? He won't even look you in the eye anymore. The old man can scarcely be bothered to interact with her or her mother in the weeks before the wedding. Right before the ceremony, with all the guests gathered and the reverend waiting, he takes you out to the barn and lights a thin cigar, leaning against the palings of the horse stable and regarding you for what feels like a punitive duration, just smoking at you. At least she's pretty. You've taken a pill for your wedding day nerves, and you're not sure you can close on him and land a fist. I'm not marrying her because she's pretty. Oh, you're going to tell me this is the right thing to do now, are you? I'm I'm not going to tell you anything. The old man smokes, picks bits of ash off his suit sleeve. Look, I'm, I'm the way I am, you offer. Let be the bygones is what you're saying. Uh, but how did you become this person, he asks, academically, blowing smoke at the rafters. And your brother, did he follow your example? I wasn't even out with him last night. Well, I see, you're not his keeper. I'm getting married today. Why is he my responsibility? Where were you last night? I fed the both of you. Clothed you. He taps ash off the cigar, makes sure to stamp them out in the straw. But I cannot listen to your conscience for you, Pete. 
my conscience? You slip off the stall gate, stumble like a rodeo clown. A half smile curdles onto the old man's face. The look he has when he screws you over on a deal. When you owe him money. When he has you by the balls. I'm not perfect. Not like you. I'm a regular person. Yeah, well, just don't be too hard on yourself, he says. He claps us, his hand on your shoulder going by, and to the people waiting in the yard by the orchard, it looks like a gentle gesture, a pep talk. You think he'd just given the newlyweds a car or a starter trailer, and the satisfaction radiates off him like it would a lord. So yeah, his dad's kind of mean to him. <laughs> um, so Pete um, is a social worker in the northwestern part of the state. He's um, of Montana, where I'm from, and um, he he winds up going up to an even remoter region of the state um, when his wife cheats on him and. Um, eventually leaves him. So his father's kind of right, I guess. Um, but but um, he winds up he winds up coming across this this boy one day. There's a couple of different cases in the book that he's like resolving, but one of the main ones, which forms the through line of the book, is this kid named uh, Benjamin Pearl who's um shows up in the school and no kids know who he is nobody knows where he's from what his deal is and he uh he takes a kid out for lunch gets him some new clothes brings him out to his father who's out in the woods his father freaks out makes the kid take the clothes off pete says like hey whoa like i wouldn't i wouldn't have let you take this kid back if i thought you were going to run off into the cold wilderness with him naked and uh jeremiah pearl the, the father says um, I'd, I'd kill him before I'd let you have him. And it's pretty clear this guy's really paranoid and around the bend and living deep in the sticks. And as the story progresses, um, Pete finds out more stories from other people about this guy and comes to discover he is definitely someone who is going to have a violent confrontation at some point with somebody. And um, with the courage and caution, I guess, you know, takes it on himself to try and reach out to these people and find them and find their family and help them. And one of the things he does is go out to where he first dropped off the kid and leave some stuff out there. And at this point in the book, he's going back there to check out the spot where he left some stuff and he sees some promising signs that they've been there and he leaves some more stuff. And on his way back to his car, he runs into some dope growers um, in the wilderness. And they're freaked out because they don't know who he is, and they kind of hold him hostage for a little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit. And he explains who he is, and he says, I'm just up here looking for this guy, um, Jeremiah Pearl, and the, the dope growers are like, what? <laughs> Pearl? And they freak out and cut down whatever they have and make Pete carry it down to his car with them and go back to their camp. And... At this point, um, the main guy that they're with, Charlie, begins to tell them a story about their interaction with Pearl. So that's where I'll pick up. They meet Pearl one spring day at another grow location, a place not to be disclosed. It has rained for several days, and they have been waiting for good weather to plant the seedlings. 
they're playing cards in their tent when they hear the man call out, Pearl, in a hooded poncho, a rifle covered with clear plastic slung over his shoulder. He wears a huge beard, and the rain is coming down so hard you cannot make out his eyes or his expression. He asks, what is their business up here? Charlie says they're camping, jokes how it's just their luck to be out in such weather. Their saplings, though, are in apple crates and covered by a makeshift tarpaulin of plastic bags. Pearl inspects them, ignoring Charlie's protests. He nods, as though he now understands everything. They think for a moment they're caught, that he is law enforcement, maybe, or some grizzled official with a Bureau of Land Management, but there's that rifle. Maybe he's a crazy misfit, a poacher. Pearl shouts through the rain that they have a crop in another location. Charlie says it's none of his business. Pearl describes the location exactly. The tent is small for men playing cards, three men playing cards, and now more so with Pearl, who simply entered it uninvited. He tracks in a great deal of mud and badly reeks. Dark water runs off his filthy pants, and getting a close look at him, they can see now a face of staggering intensity, eyes a mineral shade of blue, an unnerving cold potential in them. Pearl introduces himself now. He asks if they would like to parley. There's some discussion about what that in fact means. He talks in a strange way, grand with out-of-date words and diction. He explains that he does not believe the land he walks on is his own, but also that no one knows its features as well as he. He insists that he has not one issue with cannabis and discusses with them the history of the plant and its role in the early republic the rope, cloth, and paper that was made of it, and the wide variety of its applications on land and sea. He outlines what interests had lobbied for its criminalization. He says that growing the plant is a demonstration of man's inherent freedom. So Charlie offers to smoke with him. Pearl declines. Charlie asks Pearl, does he mind if he and his partners partake? And Pearl says, go ahead. So Charlie and his friends get stoned while Pearl begins to tell them this story of them traveling west. He uh, does what any reasonable person would do when his wife is having visions that they need to go live in the mountains. Um, he sells everything they own, uh, gets seeds, guns, bullets, and gold, and enough cash to get to where they're going. And on their way out, um, they have a little bit of engine trouble, they wind up needing to stay in a hotel, they wind up running out of cash, this cash that he finds in some way really abhorrent and troubling. He doesn't like American money, he wants gold. He doesn't get why we don't just do shit with gold and eggs. And it's frustrating to him and he's got to barter with this woman with this gold coin and he's like, I've got this gold coin, it's $200 worth it. And he gets out the London fix and says like, this is how much it is and see, you can see right here this end. She's like, I don't want a gold coin. I'll just give you an IOU, which is what a nice person would do, but it greatly offends him. <laughs> Pearl asks Charlie, can he believe this? Charlie is at this juncture quite confused as to Pearl's point. If there is a point, the rain abates somewhat, and inside the damp and stinking tent, there is no answer to Pearl's question from Charlie or the others. 
Pearl says that the irony is not lost on him coming all this way and having all this gold and no one with whom to trade. He says he'd come to understand that it was already underway. What's already underway? Charlie asks. The war. Pearl is quiet now, grinning faintly. It would seem like a man partway into a good drunk. In any case, Charlie offers him a belt from his flask. Pearl's eyes flash at some memory of whiskey, and he nods yes. He would like a drink. He doesn't say how they made it. Perhaps he thinks it and thinks he says it. There's more than paranoia at work here. His mind is not right. He bobs to the surface of human connection, but resides mostly just under, like waterlogged driftwood, steadily saturating and sinking. He drinks again, wipes his beard with his dirty palm. Every place is in East Berlin, he says. Mm -hmm. A Russia, and there is no West to be gotten to. Only these mountains, this Masada. He says he is dreaming of the Jews in their mountain caves, the Romans implacable as Romans building their siege embankment. I'm the cacangelist, Pearl says, bringer of the bad news. The plague has come and the war is here. Now Charlie knows a lot of religion, was himself taught by nuns, and these rantings amount to nonsense. He asks Pearl what he wants. He says he wants to be understood. Understood about what? Pearl says he wants his efforts to be perfectly clear. What efforts? Charlie asks. Pearl says that Charlie and his partners undertake their enterprise in a war zone, and he will require payment in gold to protect it. They smile. At last, a joke. He must be joking. He isn't. So Pearl is told he can go fuck himself. <laughs> He can get the hell out of here. What thought makes a queer expression on his face is not clear. Is it sheepishness that his gambit has failed? Is it malevolent calm? Is he just keeping his anger in custody? He leaves in a slighter rain than the one that gave him up. A few weeks later, Charlie goes to see one of the small fields, takes a fishing pole by way of a disguise for game wardens, forest service, whoever. He arrives at a field of yellow knee-high stalks, dead and dying. He turns the soil. It's been salted, literally salted with rock salt. He knows it's pearl and is certain when he gets back to his car, for there are three quarters evenly spaced on the front bumper of his van. A coin for Charlie and each of his partners, a hole in its temple. Charlie's pissed. This motherfucker, he doesn't own the wilderness. Who does this cocksucker think he is? A hole in his windshield. He's still inspecting it when the report of the rifle washes through the air. There's another, and another, and another each only as loud as an egg cracked on a skillet, and he's just hit the dirt when the shooting is over, the reports echoing off the mountains. He cowers a good 10 minutes before crawling in the back doors of the van, pale yellow mushrooms of stuffing out the back of the seats. He leaps behind the wheel, keys ignition backing out, gas pedal to the floor. The windshield is so spiderwebbed, he has to drive with his head out the window, 
to see his way home. So that's who Pete's dealing with most of the book. <laughs> and it's kind of fun because I, uh, I didn't realize that it, when I set out, I, originally it was kind of two books in my mind. I worked in a group home for several years, so I, I worked with social workers and the kids who worked, or the kids who were in the group home that I was at, and there was something profound about that experience, just being um, uh, near, near kids who had been so traumatized, and just getting up was like this massive act of courage, just taking their pills and going to class and doing normal shit. And sometimes they're 10 feet away with a coffee cup, ready to throw at your head, and other times they're being incredibly tender and open, and, um, and you're seeing kind of like, the wreckage of like what's happened to them and they're not they weren't like they weren't born that way they were made that way and you had this feeling you could unmake them that way but um i don't think i ever felt like i fixed anybody which is a really hard thing and i and that was one thing i realized from that job was how hard that must be to never really get all the way to, f to fixing somebody um but some you know some probably impossible. And on the other side, um, you have uh, Pearl, who in my mind sort of stood for the most possible radical expression of our freedom, that we're, we have this dichotomy in our country between um, you know, uh, what we need, what we owe our, each other and what we owe our communities, and then like what we need to do to leave each other alone. And I, you know, I had a I put a quote at the beginning from uh, Henry David Thoreau, which is like, if I knew for a certainty that a man was coming to my house with the conscious design of doing me good, I should run for my life. And I kind of agree with that. Um, good intentions uh, don't cut it a lot of times. Um, but anyway, that's those are the things that like play out throughout the book. Um, but there's another thread in the in the narrative, which is um, that you know Pete's personal life and his um, his daughter in particular, Rachel, who's 13 and um, doesn't want anything to do with him and feels very much her father's absence and has for many years because he's been so damaged and consumed by his job, um, has been such a burnout that he's not been a very good father, and um, she and her mother leave Montana for Texas. And so I'd like to read a little section from that. It's written in a, a Q&A style, um, which is the way I tend to generate material for myself. I'll, where's Pete from? Shoto, Montana. What's Shoto like? It's a shithole. Uh, so, how, you know, whatever. Why, why is it like that? And what, what it was like to grow up there? And I'll, I'll write. And sometimes it's just a way of forming, like, enough ballast so you feel like you have inhabited that world enough imaginatively that you can just write about it. And other times that stuff turns into narrative. And that's what I was doing a lot with these sections was I was writing sections for her. They were just Q&A and putting them into where I thought they belonged in the book so we would step away. And then I went back and tried to turn them into regular narrative and they sucked and I couldn't figure out why they weren't working and I didn't know if it was at the wrong perspective or I could, and then and then one day I just kind of you know undid a bunch of stuff and just read it again as a Q&A and I liked it and I didn't know why I liked it and I kept writing the book that way and I kept them in Q&A and um, two things occurred to me as a reader when I was 
kind of stepped away from the, a draft of the book and read it again and thought, okay, maybe this is all right. One is that it felt like um, I'd seen it before and then I remembered, oh yeah, like the penultimate chapter of Ulysses is in Q&A. So if it works for Joyce, like, <laughs> hey, all right. Um, but then, then, you know, so it's not that weird actually. I mean, it's in other, other works, the Q&A kind of thing. But, um, but for me, ultimately it became this, this expression um, of anxiety. You're just asking a question and getting an answer, asking a question and getting an answer, and this, these cue, the, the questioner never really becomes clear to me as a writer even, who, who's asking the questions and where the answers are coming from. As close as I can say is the questions are coming from some kind of advocate for Pete, and the answers are coming from some sort of advocate for Rachel, who likes to be called Rose, and they are like constantly evading one another. And for me, I felt like every question was just like, is she okay, is she okay, is she okay, where is she, is she okay? So, they stayed like that. So I'll read this and then, um, then we'll, have, we'll have a little conversation. Right, yeah, sounds good. Yeah. What was it like on the way to Texas? It was Wyoming, which means to drive forever through ugly scrubscape the color of dirty pennies. It was just Wyoming along. They were Wyoming forever. You could Wyom all day and not make any progress. To Wyom was to go to nowhere, through nowhere, to see nothing, to do nothing but sit. You turn on the radio and you wyom through the dial slowly, carefully, in search of a sliver of civilization only to find a man talking about the price of stock animals and feed. Did her mom wyom too? Mom wyomed all through Colorado. She smoked, she drank coffee and tab and then beer, wyoming her fingers on the wheel sometimes and stopping to wyom to somebody on the payphone, maybe daddy, but probably that friend in Texas, the truck driver, See your boyfriend? It's an old friend, Rachel Leslie. Old friend from when? From when I worked at the trucking company. He's a trucker. Is that why we're going to Texas? He said we could stay with him, yeah. And what's his name? Jimmy. And how do you know him? I told you from when I was a receptionist. Did you do it with him too? <laughs> what is that supposed to mean? Him too, what? Come on, I know why daddy left. Did her mother hit her or pull over or give her some kind of talking to? Worse, what did she do? She cried. Drops big and quiet racing down her face. Did it unnerve Rachel? Rose. Did it unnerve Rose? Yeah. Why? Because her mother was Wyoming. She was Wyoming hard. And she was days and years and maybe forever from a good man. Thanks.
Hi, Brian. Hello, Smith. <laughs> I liked your book. Thanks. It's all right. As far as books go. Pretty good for pretty good for, for a book. Uh, I would like to uh, begin uh, with a question um, that I'll be asking you. So, in a number of different uh, reviews, your book has been compared to a Western, which I know that you have a certain personal objection to. It's just like being uh, wrong. Um, <laughs> but you have um, professed the belief that there's a correspondence between your book and the tropes of de uh, detective fiction. Um, can you elaborate on that? Um, yeah, sure, sure. Um, two things. Um, first, the Western, you know, uh, like everybody thinks people in the West are like quiet and stoic and talk like they have marbles in their mouth like Heath Ledger and Brokeback Mountain and it's and that was an amazing performance but it also really pissed me off because it just was the like peak of that genre of West like just completely like he's made of stone or something and my grandfather couldn't shut up so I just never understood like what that was and he was a cowboy as fuck as fucking cowboy as cowboys um, so so yeah I, I thought that there was something weird about this idea that everybody's that the, my, the Montana that I that I know and grew up in was filled with people that were just as talkative and paranoid and daffy and interesting and weird and complicated as people from anywhere. So, um, but I didn't know that that was okay to write about for a long time. Um, I don't know, like David Milch said that that was just invented so they could get around the laws of obscenities and making movies in the 30s or something. They needed a hero that could kill people but wouldn't be profane, so he was just this quiet white hat guy. It's just such bullshit. I mean, it's cool, but whatever. Um, and, but then with the detective thing, it's like I just realized that there were there's cops, and there's doctors, and there's lawyers all throughout our literature and fiction, and social workers do all that shit. They go in and investigate. They go in and make diagnoses they go in and go to take go to court give depositions and so um i just felt like it was um maybe not underrepresented or anything but under i mean who has a right like what job has a right to be represented but <laughs> like firemen more fiction about firemen you know um but but anyway i just thought there it was interesting interesting narratively and the hurdle is just that you're writing about um, I think why it's difficult to write about is because it's about kids, and like, how do you write about children that are neglected or abused or been through some sort of traumas, significant traumas? And my solve was to not write about 90% of the stuff that I learned, because there's no way to do it. It's too too harsh, you know. Um, but it still doesn't mean that it wasn't like worth trying. I felt like so. So um, you mentioned that um, this book actually uh, started out as uh, two books that you 
crafted together like Frankenstein's monster of, mm. of, of literature. Um, and so the, the book actually is kind of a, a, a two-hander in terms of like you have um, Pete on the one side and you have uh, Pearl on the other side. And Pearl is like set up somewhat as an antagonist but also a second protagonist in his own way because um, both these men have equal conviction um, when it comes to their uh, belief system. Um, Pearl is this kind of, you know, this real libertarian avatar. You know, he doesn't want the federal government or like anyone getting in his face. And, you know, Pete is the well-meaning person in the Thoreau quote who believes that there needs to be some kind of social contract, uh, some kind of uh, uh, infrastructure uh, community that permits uh, civilization to function. So. Um, you know that you you you, you wrote uh, both of these two uh, men with um, lots of uh, passion and lots of sympathy. So my question to you is: Do you love or hate freedom? <laughs> um, I hate it. No, I, um, I think uh, I think there was a time when we were we were much more reasonable about saying like, okay, well, freedom of speech, sure, but like, let's not yell fire in a crowded theater. We can all agree on that. And everybody's like, cool, yeah, a bunch of people died that one time. Let's not do that anymore. Um, you know, whatever. Um, and now, and now the conversation is so, so, I think, so geared towards freedom, you know, and all of our, all of our, um, all of our communications to ourselves constantly about personal freedom and people being free and people doing their thing and like and I don't know I work in advertising so maybe I'm just like I've drank too much of that that Coca-Cola but um, but it I, I don't think we talk enough about like our social contract and that's kind of why I set the book in 1980 when it was like flat out like government's the problem we've been hearing that for years and I'm not a bleeding heart I, I want uh, I I think people should be allowed to have guns, I guess, you know? I, I, I don't, but then I see those fucking nut jobs go in and kill two cops in Las Vegas because they were too crazy to even be in Clive and Bundy's group. And, you know, the, I don't know if you guys remember that guy, the, you know, the rancher guy when all the people showed up at the AR-15s and then you're like, okay, well, when do we have a reasonable conversation about that shit? This book does not have a reasonable conversation about that shit, but... Um, but it definitely, I would definitely wanted to go into that because I think that's where our moment is right now. Um, so, you know, in reference to uh, the setting, you know, a lot of um, critics in response to your book have made reference to that, you know, the, the place is like a character, which I personally think is a very stupid thing to say. Because <laughs> the place isn't a character in your writing. It's because you're kind of um, bullshit at your job. Um, <laughs> nevertheless, you picked a very specific place in a very specific time. Can you elaborate on your reasons for uh, choosing both of those things and possibly address how Mount St. Helens may or may not have been a contributing factor? Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's funny. Um, Mo Montana's when people say when people think of Montana, they think I think first that there are crazy people there, and second that it's supposed to be really pretty, and um, both of those things are 
half true. Um, the w eastern part of the state is mostly nuclear missiles, but um, but the West is really is a really beautiful place, and you can't you can't ignore the beauty of it. And I just I like the juxtaposition of the, these people who. Um, are in the middle of a recession, trying, coming from an extraction industry and logging towns and things like that, and it's not, yeah, it's beautiful, but you're making $16,000 a year in 1980 or something like that. The biggest employer in the state was the federal government. Um, there's a reason why that state doesn't work, and it's because there were big, huge mining interests that came in and ran the state forever, you know? and. It's still in that. It's still in the culture out there. Um, Mount St. Helens was. There's a scene in the book where um, Pearl's out in the woods, and Mount St. Helens has happened, and there's all this ash falling from the sky, and um, he he reacts like he would react in that situation, and freaks out, and just pretty sure it's the end of the world. So I couldn't avoid that. I think I don't think I set the book in nineteen like, like right around then on because of that. But once I real once it, you know you go through and look like what happened in oh shit nineteen yeah fucking a <laughs> Mount St Helens yeah this is good good choice nice. <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna ask one or two more and then open it up to the audience. Um, so. You and I went to um, the same uh, graduate program in creative writing. There's uh, one or two other alumni of that program in the audience, and I'm sure there's um, aspirants and graduates of different MFA programs um, also in attendance. There's this larger cultural debate over whether or not the MFA system is positive or negative. I'm curious where you land on that debate and what your experience um, in um, our program, how that impacted your writing um, and your development. Yeah. Well, uh, and your sex life. And my sex life. I got, uh, I mean, I got rejected from every MFA program forever, it seemed like. And uh, and it's because I wasn't good enough to get in. So, on that level, it was the first rung through it, you know, first hoop to jump through. Um, but and then, but by the time I went in, I definitely read a whole bunch and really, really identified with Flannery O'Connor's statement that MF, you know, when someone said like MFA programs discourage people from writing, and she said not enough. Um, like, because like, you know, because if the club won't have you in, it was like, fuck them, I'm like, whatever. Um, <laughs> and then once you get in, you're like, this is great. Uh, but Texas is one of the best places in the country to go. I mean, it's fully, it's like fully funded and you get, you, I got to make a movie down there um, and write a whole bunch of short stories. And so I, my attitude is that um, probably most MFA programs are a bit of a, a bit of a boondoggle, but then, but if you, but the good Can ones we are really good. Boondoggle? Um, no. <laughs> You're in a godless coastal city, so not everyone knows that word. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> um, okay, great. So. Oh, you really? <laughs> no, I, I literally don't know what it means. Mm, it's like a waste of money and time. Okay. Yeah, it's just a way, like a way for you. Uh, Boondoggle is like a way for you to go and um, 
fritter away some fritter away somebody else's money or a loan or whatever and like just fuck around which is you know that's that's an important part of life you should do that too if that's what you want but just be honest about it all right so uh uh final question i have for you so you know um, we were having a you know typical gentlemanly philosophical conversation at the bar before this reading, um, and we were discussing uh, the um, architecture of um, the novel, and we're sort of in agreement that if you're writing in the long form, it needs to be building to a catharsis that's worthy of the time investment that the reader puts in, and you. Uh, particularly compared your approach to this book, which, by the way, has a fucking killer, spectacular ending that will gut you, to pulling a lover's hair during <laughs> coitus. And I'm wondering if you could explain this philosophy of endings to the audience. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean... And look, I read your book, and like, yeah, I get and it. you agreed. Yeah, you totally were like, yeah, no, I'm like, totally. oh, fuck that's yeah, like, 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 ow, but pull harder. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, uh, it hurt. It should hurt good, right? Um, it should feel. It should. Uh, my, uh, I mean, my favorite. My favorite. My favorite stuff. You know, you put it down and you're fucked up. Like when you're done reading it, I don't think there's. Um, I'm only angry at a book when it's like it ends on a or, or I feel like I've gone through a, a quaint experience of some sort you know like uh, you know what I mean like it's okay but I don't want to sit through a, like a, I don't you know I don't know I want to be I want you to upset me a little bit and make me make me feel like I shouldn't have done that <laughs> uh, do we have any questions from the audience <laughs> yes um, I'm not a writer but would love to write one day um, do you set hours for yourself do you have everything in mind before you start writing or how what is kind of your ritual um, first thing in the morning cup of coffee write for a couple hours before you read anything and I just do that because I heard someone else say to do that you know a long time ago and it just worked for me uh, there's a bunch of I mean some people write at night some people I could never write at night I want to be do that every day? yeah try to I mean yeah yeah pretty much every day I'd at least jot something you know jot something down give myself a little bit of that time it's like I mean not to be grandiose about it but like it's practice it's like you know some people do karate or whatever you know and they're committed to it it's just your thing it's like if it's your thing you set aside time to do it it sucks though because like there are other things I'd like to do in the morning sometimes and, like karate <laughs> anyone else Yes. You spoke about the architecture and being at the bar earlier. What is the preferred recommended beverage to drink while reading? Well, it's funny because he actually has a beverage that we might need to crowdsource a name that's <laughs> essentially his invention, but uh, not, doesn't actually have a formal title. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's uh, bull, bullet rye, preferably, and yeah. soda with just little bitters. Can't believe that doesn't have a name. So we actually came up with a name at the bar. If anyone comes out <laughs> to the next bar, we will disclose, but not here. <laughs> it's uh, not safe for work. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's me. 
Um, so I know you also write movies. When you were writing this book, did you see it played out like a movie? Um, I'm just asking about the experience of writing a novel versus a script. Um, In your the learning learning to write screenplays and having to write uh, what was basically a technical document for other people to read from you know you know this actors like where it's like what's I need to I need to know very clearly on the page but then have enough room to interpret how to play the lines and how to be the character embody the character um, but then also see really clearly the plot um, and I'm missing a bunch of other difficulties in writing a screenplay, but all of that stuff um, that goes into doing that, um, I think is really useful for writing a book. Um, my book, I, th I, like, I think it, I, I, I tried to structure it so it speeds up. So that at the beginning you're really just into the world and you give a shit about the characters and that by the time you're on page you know, 250, 300, you can't, you, now you're reading because you want to know what's going to happen. Um, and not everybody's going to like a book like that, but that's the kind of book I like to read. Um, uh, Blood Meridian does that. It gets really fast at the very end. There's all, and it's not that it's a, like, real slow contemplative book at the beginning, but, um, but it accelerates. And I, I like that a lot in novels. So I, I would like to, I don't know if I'll get, ever get over that. I would love to have books that I like. I like to read books that feel like that. When you say accelerate, do you mean like the action, or do you mean the rhythm of the language, or? Um, I mean, I mean that the the plot really starts to take over. Yeah, that you really are invested in. You you know the characters really well at that point. You know what the stakes are. You know the world. You don't need to explain as much about. You know what? It, it, it's you're just into it now. It's like fuck what's going to happen to these people you know anyone else I kind of a two parter one it's cool that it's in your hand now right it's amazing for it to go from a manuscript to something that's complete yeah if you were in the airport or a public place and you saw somebody you respected that had it in their hands who would that be like Henry Kissinger or something <laughs> 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 Dame Judy Dench. <laughs> uh, who would I like to see holding the book? Oh man, I don't. Yeah, um, that's a really interesting question. Yeah, it's so weird. I'm like Hillary Clinton. I don't know. That's weird, right? It's like I want to pull her hair. <laughs> who doesn't? Yeah. And the easier question is: like, What's the editing process like for those of us that don't know what it's like to you know, produce a uh, like editing with an editor, at, um, uh, I'm sure it varies from person to person. My experience was that, I'm, I mean, the, way, the, the editor buys the book. So the editor goes to the publisher and says, I want to work on this. And then they have to argue for why they want it and how, how what they're going to spend to get it and do all that. And so you want that person who really, really wants the book. And... Um, my editor, Lee Boudreaux, um, who's now going to go and start her own imprint, um, but she worked at Echo, now she's going to start her own imprint at Little Brown. Um, this was amazing. She had this ability to say, like, um, I love this. 
oh, but this you need to fix this, and you want and make you want to fix it because you wanted to please her. So they they need to be able to tease out that ambition, that like give me a gold star or a kiss on the forehead kind of thing. Those that's the kind of person I, I want to I want to work and pull, pull pull my hair a little bit. <laughs> uh, we can take one more question. The answer will be pull my hair. So yeah. Yes. Um, nothing. No, no. <laughs> Life is pain. Yeah, right. Life is pain. Um, uh, my struggle is pretty great. Yeah, that's what everybody's reading. The that. Hitler version, right? The Hitler. Yeah, my. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that. I'm plowing through that, and um, I'm a completist, so I just started reading again. God, I just keep saying this all the time, but I keep reading this book on the airplane or his his stuff, John Lacare. You guys read like, fuck, read all of his shit. It's really good. He's a good writer, and everybody, everybody's like, oh yeah, no, he is right. And it's like, but nobody's. It's not that nobody's reading him. He's super famous, but it's kind of like saying, I I really like Credence. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, they're great, but he's awesome. Um, so I've been reading a lot of that. Um, but I'm I'm sort I'm like a five book on the nightstand kind of person, um, and I sometimes discover like much later that I really like a book, you know. Well, thanks everyone for coming out. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.